once you start planting, you know, it's, it's like printing money. I mean, you can get your own food, your own medicine and, you know, building materials, everything you have just basically comes without doing much more than just a little bit of work. You know, if you do a little planning at the beginning, you can really plan out things really nicely because you have a, a goal to attain, whether it's a food forest or enough bamboo to, to build some stuff. So, you know, if we plan building a building, you know, five years in advance, I can start growing the stuff I need for that building. Then when it comes to, to build the building, you know, I don't have to go out and buy nearly as much material because I've grown what I need for that, that project. You're listening to the Sharing Insights Podcast, a show where we explore stories, strategies, and insights from ecologically and socially beneficial projects throughout Costa Rica. These stories provide landowners everywhere access to unique ideas to inspire better business models for greater success and impact. My name is Jason, and I'm a co-founder of one of these unique places. I've been visiting with other owners of impact centers to discuss the successes, challenges, and insights that they've earned along the way. Join me on the adventure. A more sustainable world awaits. Today's guest has a passion for plants like few people I've known. Justin's turned a developing golf course property into a permaculture-based disc golf course, complete with a community center, dining hall, and game room. This eco-village project has been attracting a growing number of neighbors interested in the mission. In his opinion, this is what a true country club should look like. The conversation spans over topics like the importance of planting seeds, medicinal herbs, and making bokashi bioferments for healthy soil building and animal care. He also describes his use of living roofs and vines to create microclimates for natural cooling. Justin is a wealth of knowledge, and I'm grateful that he's taken the time to share his insights with us. Let's get into it. Today on the Sharing Insights Podcast, I have the pleasure of meeting here with Justin Dolan of the St. Michael's Permaculture Country Club in the Central Pacific of Costa Rica. And Justin, upon arrival, gave me a really super tour of the farm. I'm so impressed and so grateful I made the trip out here to meet you. Thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you came out and glad you're willing to share some of the things we do with the world. Yeah. Uh, before we do, I just want to introduce you a little bit to the listeners. Uh, Justin came out here a number of years ago and he had a small homestead here on the land. And he, the neighboring property was developing into a golf course, which most yeah. people know is very intensive on agrochemicals and other practices that maybe one might not want right next door. To no, especially our, our homestead was completely organic. We didn't use any Roundup or any harsh uh, synthetic chemicals for pests or funguses. And yeah, it was... So you saw them hard building to see this it. road in and they were spraying chemicals on your property. Yeah, they actually came across far side of the road to spray. Just, I guess they just didn't like, you know, nature and you know, organic agriculture. Well, that's what they know. Yeah. They know, like they, they want to keep the road clear, the easiest thing to do for them is well, they, to they just, went across the road. You're not even near the road, like over into my property spray. And yeah. So the action you took is what ultimately led you to buying the, the golf course yeah. and turning it into this disc golf course that you have today. And I want you to go ahead and share with the listeners a little bit about your story about how you came to uh, take on this huge tract of land and what you've done with it. Yeah, I originally came just to live, you know, a nice, quiet, sustainable life with just the family in a, a really beautiful part of Costa Rica, close to the ocean. Um, you know, and it's a really quiet, 
you know, just clean, pristine water. Uh, I don't know, it's, it's my idea of paradise. And, you know, our, one of my neighbors actually wanted to build a, a golf course here. And he uh, really, really likes spraying chemicals so much so he'd actually come across the road onto my farm and start spraying like, you know, in, in my property. And, you know, I told him that he couldn't come to my property. He said he owned it. So I, I called up a surveyor and had the surveyor come out and stake off what was my property, what was his. And it turns out like, he built his entire road on my property. And, you know, so I, I closed off his road and I built him a new one on his property, which, you know, was enough to, to give him, the, you know, he quit after that. He said, you just want to sell it. And I bought his, bought his golf course. And, you know, here we are today. We just got fortunate enough to, to buy the property from him and, you know, keep it pristine and keep it uh, synthetic chemical free. Yeah. That alone is great advice. You know, when we, especially as foreigners out here. But I, I think I think it's the case for anyone buying land anywhere, whether it's in your home country or elsewhere, uh, really doing your due diligence yeah, and knowing important. where your boundary lines are. And it doesn't mean we have to police our boundary lines or be bad neighbors. But getting a survey when you when you buy your property is really good. They should give you a, a survey plano on a piece of paper and a survey can come out and actually put sticks in the ground and say, this is where the the property is, and this is where the, the street is. And in Costa Rica, there's a huge problem with the uh, the surveys because there's a lot of surveyors here that, that don't do a very good job. There's a lot of surveyors here that, you know, add more land to the property than should be. And if you look at all the surveys in Costa Rica, there's, you know, one and a half times the amount of land in Costa Rica as the surveyors, or at least they were. I think they've, they've been working on it lately to reduce that and to, to try and get the planos and the properties all match up to be the same amount of land as in Costa Rica. But it's tough because Costa Rica is not a flat land. It's not just a, a level, level surface. It's up and down. So the distance from one point to another point, it's a lot longer if you have to go down to a valley from one. So it's tough to do the survey work too, especially the jungle. Cause yeah, when we're in Costa Rica, it's, it's very thick forest and you can't see what the lines that you cut through the forest. And, you know, that could take a lot of time and, you know, we don't really like cutting through the forest. We, we're all about planting new stuff here and really turn it into a complete, you know, lush uh, food forest, you know, hundred acres of just, you know, multi-levels of trees and uh, species and, you know, as many different plants and medicines as we can actually pack in. Right now we've got over 200 different types of fruit trees and over 200 different types of plants and crops and medicinal plants and shampoos and deodorants. And, you know, anything we find that we could use in a regenerative community, we, we try to grow here, toilet paper, um, you know, banana leaves for, uh, for band-aids, for plates. And we try to find other uses for things that we have available to, to cut down on what we buy. Our, our goal here is to be a, a consumer and, you know, in a consumer in a way that's not going to harm the earth. So if we cut down a banana stalk for using the, uh, the leaves, it's not going to be a problem because that banana is naturally going to grow up with four or five more bananas out of that same spot. And all the things we use that, that banana leaf, that was a plate or a, a band-aid to, to stop some uh, bleeding is actually going to become part of the soil again in the future because it's 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 chemical free from chemicals that are synthetic and it composts right back in the ground and makes a really good topsoil. Yeah, and you know definitely these are these are practices that I don't think there's probably a whole lot of country clubs talking about. No, and uh, it's fascinating. Besides besides the fact that you acquired a large golf course that was beginning to be developed and you've turned it into this disc golf course, which is far, far more ecologically sound effort. You're integrating what you've learned about permaculture right into the structure of your, of the, the playground there. And 
Tell me a little bit about the the term, the choice to use the word country club. What more besides it being a golf course renovated uh, inspires you to use the term country club? Well, you know, I think if you look at the words country and club, I mean, I think we fit in better than a a club that an average golf courses and country clubs cost over a million dollars a year to, to manage. They use tons of potable water. They put more and more harmful chemicals in their property than anyone else. And, um, you know, that's not what the country should be like. The country clubs, they're fake country. You know, we're, we're like the real country club. We take care of the country. We're stewards of the land. And, you know, we're still a club. And our club has has benefits. You know, our, our golf is is inexpensive. I mean, anybody can play disc golf. Most courses are free. You buy a, a disc for five or 20 bucks and that's really all you need. You can be young or old and you know, in addition to that, we don't we don't use potable water in our 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 disc golf course or even our country club, the round the gardens around it. They use water that that we harvest from rain. We have entire buildings at the first floor is just a rainwater collection tank. We cut uh, level swales into the ground to uh to make springs. You know, we use those springs for our, our animals and we'll use them for uh, for watering our our uh, gardens. You know, our country club is is based more around the the CSA, the Community Supported Agriculture Movement, where our club will actually have a, a group of people that have you know, discounted Beyond Organic food at their at their club, where they can you know they can eat healthy and then they still come and enjoy the the benefits of a club. Like you know, we have a, a swimming pool, we have pool play, pool tables, play pool, uh, the disc golf course, air hockey, places for archery, throwing hatchets. You know, it's a a place you can go out and go to a nature reserve and you know, be in the country. And, you know, I'm sure country clubs don't like our, uh, our use of uh, the, the, their, their name for country clubs. And we even get a little blowback from some ecological communities because we're too resort-like for some communities. But, you know, I consider ourselves a bridge between like where people are regularly going about the matrix life, you know, working their entire life to pay for their mortgage and their cars and process food. We're here, you know, the people, you know, have a... Uh, you know, a lifestyle is based around nature and regenerative agriculture. Yeah, no, I love it. And uh, you just rattled off several of the really great games here. And it brings me uh, my attention to the first one I saw. Oh, Obviously, you pop walking in, you've got this giant chess yeah. board behind you, which is just so cool. Thanks. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, such a, a neat idea to just get people, you know, even, even the idea of like chess, you sit at a table, two people sit at a table and they stare at a square foot of space. But even this is just such a more interactive chessboard. For those that are just listening, I guess this must be about 12 feet by 12 feet, yeah. uh, like four meters by four meters. And uh, it's a huge chessboard in the ground and the pieces the have two to feet be high. About, yeah. For the big one. Yeah. So that it's just, it brings a whole nother level of playfulness into the chess game. Yeah. And I think that's cool. And so inspired. And when I got here, you mentioned with your, your members, you know, a lot of intentional communities, eco villages, et cetera, including even my small project. We have, uh, we have our logistics circles where we come together each week and we talk about what's going on in the farm and what our goals are for the week. And then we also, uh, you know, one to three times a month, depending on how many people are there, we'll have like a heart circle where we come together as a community and we share what's on our mind. Sometimes conflict comes up. A lot of times it's just a lot of gratitude, but even that is a valuable element to to community, to to having people really feel connected with who they're with. And it, and it well, it's incredible for minimizing problems before they happen. 
And you said something when I got here and you're talking about it, you're, you're saying that a community really needs a, a good blend of uh, what did you say? Cooperation and competition. Yeah, we 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 have to have that balance. We we spend most of our time trying to cooperate, trying to trying to get together to to fix the roads, to plant the gardens, to to improve our food forest, to be more resistant to bugs naturally, to have our community grow at a at a nice controlled pace, like the pace of nature. And it's also good to have that competition to balance out the uh, the cooperation and. Anytime you get the people together, meals are a really good way to bring people together. And, you know, games are a great way to bring people together. And for children, I think, you know, we have a lot of kids here that, that, that need to learn. Learning through games is a good way to, uh, to develop, you know, children and relationships among people to, to bring the community a little closer together. Yeah. I love it. I love it. You know, I, Justin, we met at a seed exchange gathering yeah. and uh it was also a music gathering and one thing that really impressed me and, and made a strong mental note this guy's definitely going to be on the podcast when it <laughs> launches is here i was in this gathering of really great people at an event that was advertised as a seed share a seed exchange and honestly i mean it was a beautiful event and i had a great time but there were very few people that were really there for the seed exchange and you were definitely one of them. You were there by the, the by the plant exchange tables with Eric Rivkin, who I'll be uh, yep. interviewing in the future here on the podcast. And uh, your your love for plants and seeds was just palpable, palpable. Excuse me. Um, and it really spoke to who you were. And then I came and saw you later that day, and you were still there, and you were still talking plants, and you were still talking seeds. And after giving me a tour of this place. You know, you, you mentioned, well, you pointed out a number of plants that as long as I've been in the tropics, I haven't seen yet. And you told me that you just, uh, every time you find a new plant, you have to find a seed for it. I, 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 I think all gardeners are like that. I, it's not, it's not abnormal to me. I just, I really love plants and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just an avid collector and I really like to learn them. And there's just so much use for the plants. I mean, plants make up so much of our lives, whether it's the clothes we wear, the building materials we use to uh, to live in, the food that nourishes our body. I mean, we can use our plants to make shampoos, to make deodorants, our, our sprays for our, our, our cattle here. They come from plants. I mean, strong, strong smell plants like garlic and neem and, and uh, saragundi are, uh, are, are really, really great for keeping away bugs and they don't do damage to the animals or us. And some of these some of these strong plants to use actually, uh, they're actually edible. So we can actually use something to, to repel bugs and it's still edible to us. And, you know, we also use a stacking function for permaculture. So our fences are all made out of this wood called Madeira Negra or Matarato or, you know, it's a stick you cut in the ground. We cut in the, uh, the Luna Maguanti six days after the full moon because the, uh, the energy and the water is just pulled up like the tides into the, into the plants. And we'll just put this in the ground. It makes a whole new fence post. That fence post we use it for a shampoo. If we have like any kind of lice, it'll clean, it'll clean that up. The flowers are uh, are edible. And the uh, Matarato, we can use it to make rat poison because the rats have a different enzyme than we have. So it'll kill them where we can make a, a salad out of this flower from, from the rat killer and lead us. And if you look at medicine, a lot of our medicines actually come just from the plants. One out of four medicines in the pharmacy are still left over from, from stuff that was just picked up out of a forest somewhere. Even the rat killer, if you look... Today, our rat killer, Warfin, is, well, and the Warfin is the the, the, the the pharmaceutical name, but it's basically just a blood thinner. It, it kills the rats by making them bleed to death, but it's a medicine because we just use a little bit of it and it cuts us down. But, you know, our, our plants are, uh, you know, 
are a way better medicine, in my personal opinion, because I've used them. I've had over 40 surgeries. I've, uh, you know, been through the hospital, you know, way more times than the average person. And at one time I was taking over $200,000 worth of drugs per month from the hospital. And, you know, for just about every disease or every issue I had, there's a plant that, that can fix it. You know, I argue with people all the time on, on the internet, which is crazy about plants. They're like, oh, you, what are you gonna do? I have a plant that cures cancer. It's like, well, if you go to chemotherapy, that plant is Vanica. It's a plant that we just, we extract and we add a couple of things different so we can patent and sell it. I mean, our world is moving towards the patentability of things. And that's kind of pushed, you know, it's taken away from, from natural cures, plants that can really help change people's, uh, people's lives for the better because, well, we, we can't advertise a product that's not going to make any money. Nobody's going to put money into that. And, you know, we're slowly losing our, uh, our medicinal plants and our, our, our knowledge about that. There's a lot of people that have really good connections with the earth and, and they can tell you, well, you have a pain, you can take this, you know, you have something in your eye, you can take that. And you know, we treat our animals with this medicine. And, um, one thing that was, uh, was that really, what I really made my mind up was we had a, a baby bull with a hernia and, Everywhere you look online in medical journals, say hernias have to be treated with a, a surgery. You can't do a, a, a hernia any other way. But, you know, in some traditional medicines, they use a rolled up tobacco leaf as a suppository. And that causes the animal to like, you know, have explosive diarrhea and pulls all their intestines. It's, it's, it squeezes them all inside. And then we just bandage them up in, in a few minutes. You know, they're, the hernia is on the inside and a couple of days with a bandage. You know, our baby bull was fine. You know, it, it never needed surgery and it was, it was a very cheap and easy, uh, easy treatment, but you know, we couldn't get that passed through, uh, I guess, modern medicine because it just, there wouldn't be any money in it. Right. Fascinating. Wow. Your, your passion, not only for planting things, but knowing all their properties is super inspiring. I've had some really, really good, in, uh, you know, mentors and there's some, some classes in Costa Rica at the, the National University of Costa Rica, UNA, that has you know, really famed ethnobotanists that have spent their entire lives learning about plants. And you can go there and, you know, you can read their books, you can talk to them, you get a lifetime experience from some of these really, really good teachers. And, you know, I just try to get as close to, like, as I can to the, the really good knowledgeable professors and, and learn what they have before their, uh, their knowledge is, is uh, you know, no longer available. The stuff that I, I used to study online is getting harder and harder to find. It's just, you know, it's just so easy to say, well, you know, you're, 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 uh, you're, you're pushing something here that hasn't been proven in a, in an $8 million study. So it's illegal if you tell people this is, this is any good for their health. So you really can't say things are even healthy anymore with, without worrying about being sued or censored or taken off the internet. Yeah. Yeah. It's challenging. Yeah. That's, that's a whole nother topic. Information exchange, misinformation, restriction of information. But you not only have, uh, had your torch lit by these mentors, but, I, I get the impression you're a torch lighter. You love to share this stuff. And, uh, I do. Uh, you have you have groups of people that come through. To, oh, we do. With yeah. the COVID right now, we're you know we're not doing any 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 gatherings, but we've had uh, an apprentice program over the last few years where we actually take people that want to learn regenerative agriculture and permaculture, and they actually have to go through every single step of the uh, the operation. They have to learn how to build their soil, you know, learn to germinate their seeds, how to transplant them how to take care of them, how to make a fertilizer for them, how to care for pests. We make our own pesticides here as well. Our, our fertilizers are probably one of my favorite things is actually a really good soil building technique uh, called Bokashi. Mm -hmm. You know, so they, they go through from getting the ground ready, digging a swale or a terrace, 
breaking it all the way through uh, the harvesting their food for their uh, their apprenticeship. And you know, we have a uh, you know a lot of permaculture centers around us uh, up the roads, Master Tal and Blizzaguana. There's there's a really, really big permaculture community in Costa Rica. And there's a lot of PDCs. And now there's an Eco University by Stephen Brooks. It's a really good way for people to learn. And you know, I didn't want to give competition and I kind of wanted to be a little bit different. You know, there's a lot of people that are really good designers of permaculture and know the design, but I see a need for people in permaculture to actually go out there and build their own their own gardens and, um, you know, actually do the the physical labor that comes through with it too. It's not just knowing it, but you have to actually be able to, to prove yourself and and break that ground and plant those seeds and go out in the sun and pick the fruit. And it's, it's really better for people that are going to be in charge of their, their permaculture gardens, even if they're out there, their own garden and hiring a few people to help them to know what it's like to, to do the work and yeah, what to expect and how it feels to be out there with a machete, maybe for eight hours a day, just trying to clear the land of all the bad weeds without using chemicals to have your garden be the, you know, the most natural as possible. It's, it's a lot tougher doing a, the regenerative work and the permaculture at first, but once once you get it done, once it's once it's going, you know we have a hundred acres that has one gardener, and you know and yeah we share uh, share our regenerative agriculture with with a nice guy who's been here for ten years. He's in his sixties, and you know he just takes care of things and moves our cows around. And you know I think the cows are another another big important part of our agriculture. A lot of people don't like animals because you know it's. It's tough. I mean, when you have an animal and you raise it from a baby, you have to sacrifice that animal and or do something with it. But, you know, we have people that, you know, would rather have their meat, you know, humanely, humanely sacrificed, treated with love its entire life. We never transport support them anyway. We don't have to inject them with chemicals. And most animals that are used for food, they inject the, uh, the bug spray right into the animal. So the animal just sweats out the poisons and the, uh, the logic is, well, if you wait three months before you slaughter the animal, well, it'll be it'll be safe to eat, which, you know, it's probably safer to eat, but it still has some poisons. But sure. the problem is the margins are so narrow in agriculture. If a farmer has, you know, a couple dozen cows and one gets sick, you know, he can't he can't always wait to or he won't always wait to see if it gets better before he sells it. They don't want to they don't have a dead animal. If your animal dies before it gets to auction, it it's no good at all. So, you know, there's no no real testing. If I could do one thing to to improve agriculture, to have a testing before the meat gets sold, it should be, it should be tested like some of our vegetables are exported. They can find out, well, wow, this is a, a high, high level of some chemical that is not, not helpful. It's harmful. Great. So what kind of uh, plants do you tend to, to use for pest control? Uh, for pest control, neem's, neem's one of my favorites. We have uh, a few neem's by the barn. It's also a medicinal plant. You use the leaves of the tree? The leaves of it. And that we have a big, big pot on the, uh, on the stove over there. We'll, uh, we'll, uh, well, like hard things like wood, woody, woody plants, like the bark is really good for, uh, for pesticides of the neem and the leaves are good. And umber grandi is another, another good one for, uh, for a really strong pesticide. Um, Madero Negro leaf, you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, Madero, Madero Negro, Negro leaf yeah. is, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of, even things that are edible. Garlic is a great pesticide for some pests. Chilies are good for other pests, but they don't like, they don't all work for the same pest. So you really have to, you have to study your pest, find out what pests you have and then find out what's gonna work on. And some, some pesticides, like we use um, Hawaiian wood rose, which is a psychotrophic, which is kind of working out pretty good on some things, but some things like tobacco, a really, really good pesticide, but tobacco and potatoes and tomatoes are all in the Solanaceae family and they're all really close to each other. But if you spray your pesticide made from tobacco on your tomatoes or potatoes, it's gonna kill those plants 
So you have to have to kind of have a little bit of a little experience and, you know, Pretty much everywhere in the world has somebody who's doing some farming and it's usually these older people these people around and they can give you you know a lot of really good advice of like you know what kind of bugs are there and how they've been treating and then you can kind of you know just look up well this bug is susceptible to chili or garlic or neem or whatever your pesticide happen, happens to be and you know it doesn't have to always be a pesticide you know we we have a little greenhouse and i'll go around and pick up all the praying mantis that i find and i'll bring them into the greenhouse and just let them let them loosen there, and you know, hopefully they eat enough to uh, to, to manage the uh, the pest population. And without any pests, like if we sprayed everything to kill the pests, we'd also kill off all our pollinators. There'd be no bees. If we don't have bees, it's about a third of our food just gone because there's nobody to pollinate all these trees. Yeah, I know. In our farm, when we when we got there, we had uh, permaculturists staying with us for several years, Desiree and. One of the first thing, and I, I, I had been around permaculture for many years, but I hadn't really studied it uh, formally. And I saw her putting in all these flowers everywhere. And I, you know, I got a little like, oh my gosh, like we need food in the ground. Why are you planting all these flowers? And she schooled me. She's like, no, actually, if you really want to have food here, you want your fruit trees to produce you want to actually have abundance, you need your pollinators. Because of course we bought, well, of course, but we bought a land that was mm, probably about half pasture and uh, we'd been regenerating it. And for her, the first line of attention was planting the pollinators. Yeah. No, and it, it, it's more than just pollinators. It's good to have a community that's beautiful too. If you have a community that's that's beautiful, you know, people want to protect beauty. You know, if, if you have a community that's, that's going downhill and becoming degenerated and uglier over time, you know, people don't put in the efforts to, to make that community worth saving. If you have a, a really beautiful place, people are going to want to keep that place around. So those pollinators and the, the, the flowers are the beauty from them are great reasons to keep them around. It's mm-hmm. And your, you know, your passion for biodiversity and it, it reminds me actually of another thing that Desiree schooled me on in those early days when uh, we were talking about seed banks and I was excited about collecting seeds from some different people. And, and I was thinking like, oh, we need to, you know, get some diversity in our seeds. And, and, and then this term, the living seed bank keep coming up. And, and I was just like, you know, I didn't understand what's a living seed bank. And then I got it like, oh yeah, seeds, some seeds will last, but in the tropics and the humidity with the insects and the bacteria and fungus, a box of seeds doesn't last very long, but here Some you take last two weeks. Like my, one of my different approach. One of my favorite trees is the ice cream bean, Ingle edilis. It's a uh, a tree that has this really big bean pod, and the beans are covered with like a a cotton candy flavored, cottony texture of really sugary sweet uh, goodness. And those seeds, if they're not if they're not germinated in fourteen days, they're not they're probably not going to last. And I had a an entire freezer section. I was freezing like, oh, well, yeah, Bill Gates has this big seed bank up in there, freezing, they must be good. But no, a lot of that stuff just doesn't, doesn't last when it's frozen. And, you know, some seeds will last 10 years in the ground or frozen, whatever, it doesn't matter. They'll come back. And sometimes the things you don't want, but I found the best way to keep the stuff uh, going is to keep it alive. And, you know, just every year, instead of just having a set number of seeds in the freezer, the seeds, we, we take some, we, we just, we, we plant them and we spread them out. We have more and more. So our seed bank grows exponentially. And now we're getting to the point where we're doing a reforestation with the rare hardwoods. Hardwoods are uh, near extinction because they're, 
They're really high quality wood and some of them are really so beautiful. There'll be a bright red tree like Ron Ron that you can see for miles and miles away. And people are like, wow, there's there's a whole year's worth of salary waiting for you just to cut that tree down. And yeah, we have a, a nice river that's covered with the green canopy of our natural native trees. And then we have some other natives that are going to extinction like uh, the Ron Ron and we have uh, Canyon Fisco. We'll have, we'll have trees with a bright golden canopy too. So you know, in a few years, we'll have a two kilometer stretch of uh, a Rastafarian flag cut, cutting through our, our community. You'll be able to see when you're flying over or even from outer space, which, you know, for making something out of plants, you know, I think it's pretty cool because everybody's like, oh, you can see the Great Wall from out of space. Like, well, that's good and all, but you know, that took a lot of work and people, but, you know, one guy can make something you can see from out of space too. And that's actually going to help, you know, save these really, really uh, beautiful trees that are great building materials. They just grow slow and they're, they're so expensive. People are exploiting them. Yeah. 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 The, the, what you're doing here to continually propagate seeds and not just propagate them, but share them abundantly because of your living seed bank concept. You just always have these seeds around that you're, I mean, upon arrival, you handed me a few seeds, oh, you know, like when I met you, you just gave me a big old handful of seeds and, and that's just, that's well, just fantastic. That's, that's part of our protection system too. Cause if we have, you know, a plant, you know, uh, 50 yards from the exact same plant. You know, sometimes the bugs will eat that one plant, but there'll be so many different plants in between. They'll just eat that one plant and the other plants that are separated in the polyculture, they'll be fine. And by having more plants and more diversity in more locations, like if I ever run out of something, I have a lot of friends that like, oh yeah, let me give you some seeds back. Cause it's, once you start planting, you know, it's, it's like printing money. I mean, you can, you can get your own food, your own medicine and, you know, building materials, everything you have just basically comes without doing much more than just a little bit of work. You know, if you do a little planning at the beginning, you can really plan out things really nicely because you have a, a you know, a goal to attain, whether it's a food forest or enough bamboo to, to build some stuff. So, you know, if we plan building a building, you know, five years in advance, I can start growing the stuff I need for that building. And then when it comes to, to build the building, you know, I don't have to go out and buy nearly as much material because I've grown what I need for that, that project. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, with the idea of planting all these seeds, obviously soil health is, is super important and another passion of yours. And you've mentioned Bokashi, which uh, later we'll film a little bit of that area so you can kind of visually illustrate some of the I wish the I could smell there. our place because I, <laughs> I took you there to, in, our, in our barn where you're like basically just standing in and poo and pee and it doesn't smell at all like no, poor pee. It, it does smells not sound like a smell like a corral no, at all. The, uh, the Bokashi we grow is so rich in mycelium and effective microorganisms. It'll take any pathogen, salmonella, E. coli, anything that, that has that poo smell to it, it'll eat that up and, and it'll turn whatever's in that poo into a really useful source of nutrient, nutrients for the animals. It's a, a prebiotic at the end, of, uh, end of the day once they're done with that. Well, we use about two weeks to make sure it's really cured well. But uh, yeah, our, our soil health really depends on the animals. Our animals give us, you know, the manure, which is probably the most important part of our, our brokashi. It's a little little manure, some rock dust for some minerals. We mix in uh, biochar with rainwater, mycelium and some unsulfurated molasses. And it comes with a really, really complex soil that is alive. And you mentioned you uh, you cut some some green material and you oh yeah yeah to, to catch the to catch the uh, the the urine from the animals is it's really good to 
we cut our, our grass because we know our grass has never been sprayed with herbicides or pesticides. So we cut our grass and we'll put down a, a mat of dry grass and a, a layer of, of uh, you know, green leaves or, you know, fresh grass. Like we'll do fresh, fresh and green and then like kind of like dry and crunchy, but still find enough material like grass or leaves that'll compost really quickly and build a little lasagna of different, different greens and browns and then put a, a layer of black black biochar on top of it and another layer on top of that. And just bring the cows in and they'll, they'll pee and poop on it. They'll stomp it all down and mix it all up. Then we, we pile it up and twice a day, we'll turn it around, keep it nice and moist and just letting it grow. And it gets to about, I mean, it'll get to 160, 170 degrees if we let it go, but we stop at a 150 because at 160 degrees, it starts killing off a lot of the, the good microorganisms. At 100, 150 degrees, we're still, uh, still just growing the, the mycelium and the good, good microorganisms. And, it's uh, and it's an amazing process, just how much better, I mean, our plants will grow when we put them inside a, you know, a Bokashi-rich environment. And the Bokashi goes beyond just the nutrients for the animals. It allows the, the trees to communicate and the plants. They can actually share uh, water, they share messages, tell the plants where the nutrients are by this mycelium network that goes under the ground. So these plants are drought resistant, pest resistant because they're stronger with this uh, this living soil, the ecosystem, the soil actually protects the plants and they, they work symbiotically. The, the plant turns the sunlight into sugar and the ground can help uh, store some of the, uh, the carbon that the plants actually taken out of the air and put it in the ground instead of releasing it back into the air. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And, uh, I don't know. I guess there might be some listeners that aren't familiar with Bokashi. It's a, it's a technology or I guess a tactic that's developed out yeah. of Japan, correct? Yeah, Japan, Korea. It's a, it's, it's a basically a fermenting of the, uh, of the nutrients in the material, the organic material actually turn into the nutrients for the, for the plants. And it also works. We use it for our chickens too. One of my favorite ethnobotanists are Don Rafa uh, Campo. They, uh, a class, he was telling me about the chickens, how they, if you ferment their food, it's, uh, it's way better for them. I guess they have a really short intestinal tract and I tried it and yeah, we take our leftover scraps from the, uh, the kitchens and we just put it into a uh, five gallon bucket. And once it ferments, the, the chickens, they love it. And they, they seem to be producing, you know, stronger eggs, the eggs that, you know, if you, if you try to break the oak, our eggs are, they're, they're not stronger, a lot more yellow than the, the stuff you get in a, a commercial store. And they're a lot more productive when they have a good, healthy, healthy diet. And the, the flavor, when you, we have chickens that eat, you know, fermented foods and natural foods and bugs, the flavor of the meat, the flavor of the eggs, it has a lot more chicken flavor than an animal that's just been eating grains and stuff that has has no flavor. Yeah, that's just, an easy test for anyone to do. The, the, the difference is, is definitely significant. Yeah. So besides the, the Bokashi, which uh, we'll have a link in the show notes of this episode to take people to that video that we're about to make, what other plants do you... Interplant in your garden for building soil. Do like you have anything that you just put everywhere yeah. that you can chop and drop well, and use for mulch? Yeah, the chop and, and drop's like a big technique of ours, and I think one of the best ones for it is uh, the Mexican sunflower. It's a really good green manure, and you know we have homes here and we have bathrooms that use a system with a biodigester a trap before it gets there and a plant filtration system. But we find that the water that comes out of those systems, you know, even if it's clean enough to use in the garden, you know. A lot of people just don't like the idea of you recycling black water for, for their gardens or even for people in outer space, they recycle their, their, all their water to be drinking water. Well, yeah, we have an abundant supply of water here and we focus on catching water. So we have way more water than we need. So the black water, we plant uh, the Mexican sunflower. The Mexican sunflower is beautiful and it's a, a great green manure. And, you know, nobody has a problem with their, 
their uh, septic water making making plants for pollinators and for green manure. So that's probably for that from green manures. That one's one of my favorites. And then yeah, it's a it feeds the pollinators as well. So yeah, it's, it's, it's gorgeous. It's, right? Yeah. The uh, another bit that uh, you had described to me when we first started discussing this interview was that you create microclimates, intentionally creating microclimates to be able to, I assume, grow different foods. Because I, I again, you know, we're we're in a place and where if it were all bare, you've got some microclimates depending on if it's a valley or a ridge top or something like that, and you've got wind that is a major factor and uh, sun and rain you've got these elemental factors that come in that significantly change what will grow there but then you start bringing a three-dimensional environment into it and you're planting things intentionally to uh, block sun or wind or move rain or whatever so what are some of the uh what are some of your favorite tactics for building microclimates and for what purposes well i think yeah in addition the food is a good one because you know i love having as much diversity as i can and there's only so many plants that they say live in the tropical zone and well i want to push it i want some plants that are maybe from the mediterranean zone i'd like to grow some artichokes and garlic doesn't really grow well in hot weather but maybe if i can find a spot down in the valley and shade it enough where there's enough wind that I can start expanding that, but I think the microclimate is coming really, uh, really handy for reducing energy, especially around their homes. Um, our homes, if you shade the uh, the east and the west, there's no sun in the morning, afternoon heat in the houses. And since we're tropical, we don't need heat in the winter, so we can cool our houses with shading them. We put on living roofs in the house, which actually insulate the house. They shade it to give a, an environment for insects and animals to live in um, by collecting water or even place in a pool. You know, we put our pools close to the house. If somebody has a pool here, we'll make the pool a saltwater pool, put it in front of the house. So when the wind blows across water, water just takes heat away from, you know, whatever it is. You have a fire, throw some water, the heat will come away and the water is a very cooling thing. So as much water as you have, you can have a lot more cooling. So if you have some areas around, around a, a lake or something and you have a hot environment, having your house close to the lake where the air will come across will naturally cool it. Your know, shades are, an easy one to do. Living roofs are, uh, you know, I think my, by far my favorite just because they're so pretty. Um, yeah, what else? What was there? There's no, one I love more. that about the living roofs. It's something that I've come across a number of times in my travels and never really gave much because we, you know, at our place, we build pretty minimalistically with, you know, a lot of round wood frames. And then we just use a lot of the, the sink roofs, the metal tin roof panels. And that's not necessarily strong enough to hold the weight of a living roof. So we haven't really gotten into that or felt the need for it. Where we're at is generally we've got good breezes. It's not so humid. And yet we have this school bus cabin that is, you know, the original bus that we drove down to Costa Rica and it can get pretty hot in the bus. And it, it helps tons to just open all the windows and stuff. But in the rainy season, you don't want to have all the windows open. So I've actually been brainstorming how to keep this cooler and coming here and remembering the, the living Ruth tactic and then seeing the vines that you have growing on these houses. I know exactly what I'm going to be doing. And so not only are you creating microclimates for growing specific plants, but you're actually creating a microclimate for human habitation exactly. as well. 
Yeah, those, those vines are key. Those vines take water from our sinks and our showers. And when they take that water and they transpire the water from a liquid to a gas, it's a chemical reaction that causes a reduction in temperatures, evaporative cooling. It's before we had these air conditioners that were filled with Freon, we had air conditioners that were basically chilling towers. It would just run water across a, a grate and they, the grate would have tubes of water that went through the, the building to cool it off. And the, the wind or the fan would blow on that. And that, that evaporation would drop the temperature enough to cause air conditioning. The only problem with that style of air conditioning is you could only cool with it, which isn't good if you have a place for fall and winter. Or, you know, I used to build hotels and we had a hotel that had this system. You could only have air conditioning. You could never have heat and air conditioning at the same time because the whole system was just, just cold water. But here in the tropics, you know, we don't need heat. I mean, we have... No need to spend any money on heat ever. It's always, you know, it's always a comfortable temperature here. And with the microclimates, the shade, being in the forest or being in the jungle, even if it's an area that's like near the equator, someplace that's really hot, if you're in the jungle, it's it's not as hot. If you're in a forest, it's a lot cooler because every every plant is giving off moisture. When it gives off moisture, that plant gives off a, a little bit of coolness and you can feel the difference. Yeah, you... You with with the permaculture and the organic methods, and even your uh, pushback from the neighboring golf course trying to spray your lands. You've definitely got a passion for keeping it natural, keeping the soil healthy, keeping the ecology healthy. And you know, we are in an area. Uh, you know, Costa Rica is has is a mixed bag. It has a strong political platform and and even a cultural and popular. Uh, platform of a lot of people want this to be a carbon neutral country, and yet it remains to be one of the great perpetrators of spraying chemical fertilizers and pesticides, insecticides, and all of this. What um, have you had any luck reaching out to your neighbors and getting them to understand or to uh, witness some of your experiments here? And um, we've had, had some really good luck, you know, with uh, with the universities in particular, University of National. Some of the, the professors will come and bring their classes here for for lessons, and um, we've had a uh, a scientist from NASA. She was in charge of the growing the uh, the aquaponics in our space. She came and spent a a month here working with our farm aquaponics, learning how we use the uh, a hybrid. Our our system's kind of a not really an aquaponic system and not really a farm system, but it's kind of both. You know, we we really like the soil. So instead of having the, the soilless system of aquaponics, we use the aquaponics to generate soil because there's there's no better animal in the world than a fish to generate soil. It's the fastest production of soil and it's really high quality soil. And a benefit of us using, you know, fish manure for uh, for our gardens is that fishes, fish don't have the uh, the same same uh, viruses and bacteria that'll affect a person. You won't get E. coli. They're they're cold blooded. We're warm blooded. The, the the diseases don't really transfer as well from a fish to us. So we can take fish water and run to our gardens with a lot less risk than you just can't take fresh poo from animals and stick that in your garden without without curing it and composting it down to a, a safe uh, safe safe uh, or bottom fertilizer. Mm -hmm. But in this case, the the you've got this continually generating pond of compost tea or ferment yeah. or I guess uh, manure tea, which being dilute, naturally diluted and having all the microorganisms to continue breaking it down in the water, you're overflowing it into your ponds. And for anyone listening that's 
Nah. Well, this, this one goes right into, a, right into a garden. So it goes right in the ground. So, you know, the water from this, it's not drinkable water and it's, it's not water you want to really dump anywhere. But if you put this water into your garden, fish water is good for your garden. The fish waste is good for your garden. So over, over time, our garden actually gets more and more, you know, fertile soil, more black, soil, black dirt instead of, uh, you know, instead of actually putting in chemicals there just to bump up the nitrogen or potassium and all this water, we don't have to, we don't have to buy it. This water comes from rainwater and just fills up the fish, fish uh, ponds naturally. Yeah, that's brilliant. We'll definitely uh, take a little tour of that on our, on our video segment as well. I, I, I love that even, you know, our, our water, our tilapia ponds are in the ground. I know a lot of people do that. And then you're reliant on somehow trying to drain that water out to your garden. That can be a little tricky, but you've got yours built above ground. Uh, yeah. Well, and we, we plant ours. We put the water as high as we can when we catch it. So when we need the water, we don't have to pump it. We just, we open a valve, the water goes downhill and, you know, no energy is needed. And, you know, we try to save as much energy as we can because, you know, energy is really expensive and energy is not just expensive yeah, financially, the, the production of a lot of energy in the world is is a really destructive process when you're looking at where does the energy come from and how does it affect the uh, the land when we're, we're extracting this energy and what kind of transportation costs are involved, the energy, the accidents are involved and all the things that go along with the politics and the corruption of these, these corporations. If we can reduce what we need or better yet not need anything, I mean, and produce, you know, everyone's better off for it except for the, the corporations. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I have actually, I have a number of other things that I really want to get in with you. And I'm also trying to keep this podcast to the relatively shorter side of things to keep it bite sized for the people listening. But I would love to continue this conversation into another episode. I really want to talk to you more about your black water systems, your gray water systems, and some of the, uh, alternative construction methods that you've been learning around here. So I think for right now, let's call this a wrap and we will continue the conversation in the next episode. What do you think? Sounds great. All right. All right. Thanks so much. And for anyone listening, make sure you find that part two because it's going to be a good one. All right. Darius friends, Justin Dolan. I love the passion this guy's got for not only plants, but for sharing what he knows. Justin's planning to reactivate his apprenticeship program in the near future. If he sounds like someone that you'd like to study with, you can reach him through his website or Facebook page to inquire deeper. The links are in the show notes with a video that we recorded going deeper into his Bokashi lab in the corral. We hit on so many great points in this conversation. For one, the importance of doing your due diligence when buying property and getting a professional site map to your land. It can not only save you complications in the future, but it'll give you better tools to responsibly design your project. I love what he was saying about how the community needs a good balance between competition and collaboration. I dare to guesstimate that healthy competition doesn't often get enough focus in many of today's progressive community designs. Games are a great way to bring the community closer together. Another interesting thing that he referenced was that if you want to have healthy community, design it with beauty in mind. The conversation doesn't end here, folks. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and tune in for part two. Before you go, though, I'd like to tell you about this great website I was turned on to recently called Coffee or Kofi. It's actually spelled K-O-F-I.com. It's a gimmicky name, but it's a cool service. The idea is, if you like what I'm doing, buy me a coffee. 
In the coming weeks and months, I'll be posting a number of pre-released and bonus episodes to the Platteround forum for those that want to wait for the episodes to come out one at a time. In the coming weeks and months, I'll be posting a number of pre-release and bonus episodes on the platform for those who don't want to wait for the episodes to come out one at a time. That's one of the ways I'm hoping to sustain my efforts. However, now, if you'd liked what you heard on the show and you'd like to play a part in getting these stories out to the world, go ahead and visit coffee.com forward slash sharing insights and buy me a coffee or a 10. Again, that's co-fee.com forward slash sharing insights. You can find the link in the show notes. All for now. <laughs>